Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind on what is a very rainy, gray day here in metro Atlanta. Uh, that's not going to have any influence on all we have to talk about on the show today. The panel is in place and ready for an energetic conversation about some uh, pretty interesting issues in political news. Let me get right to introducing them. It's Tuesday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the AJC. Hi, Tamar. How are you today? Hey, Bill. Glad to be here. Yeah, um, we're very glad that you are here. I should say that you are joined by a, a group of everybody on the show today, journalists, top journalists. That includes Renee Alegria, who is the CEO of what is now called Mundo Now, one of the most, I think, one of the top three digital news sites for um, Hispanic world here in the country. If I got that right, Renee? You did. You're uh, right on. Well, thank you for being with us, Renee. Chauncey Alcorn. Sure. Chauncey Alcorn uh, is back with us. Chauncey from Capital B, another uh, digital news uh, publication in uh, that's not just here in Atlanta, although there is specifically an Atlanta edition. And Chauncey, um, it's been a real welcoming uh, feeling to have a digital site devoted uh, to uh, news about the black world. And so we're glad you could be with us today. Pleasure as always, Bill. And last but not least, the managing editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I don't feel intimidated that he's on with you tomorrow. <laughs> Leroy uh, Chapman, uh, one of the people who oversees news gathering and what happens to it at the AJC. How have you been, Leroy? I've been great, and allow me to correct the record. Uh, Tamar is definitely in charge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. All right, let's get right to it. Uh, the uh, the it's budget week at the state capitol, which means that the legislature is not in formal session. And what happens this week is that the governor. Uh, gives a budget address, which he does today. We'll talk in a couple minutes about the fact he's doing it from Davos, uh, Switzerland. Um, he's already uh, sent the budget to legislators. They got it on Friday. But today they begin a series of hearings with department heads who come in and defend why they believe they need the amount of money that they've asked the, the, the governor to include in his budget. Uh, so there's a lot happening on that front down there today. So let's talk a little bit about it in kind of broad strokes tomorrow. First of all, it's a $32.5 billion budget. Uh, it includes more than a billion dollars for schools, which includes, uh, uh, the governor says, fully funding the quality basic education uh, formula, uh, which has not happened very often. It includes money for uh, uh, students who have fallen behind because of the pandemic, looking for programs to bring them up to speed in terms of their 
education. It uh, includes money that would help parapros get certification so they could become full-time teachers. And then it has money also for, uh, I guess, hardening schools, uh, uh, added security to protect schools from uh, any kind of uh, uh, violent incidents that might take place, school shootings and that sort of thing. Um, there's also uh, $567 million in pay raises for teachers, state employees. There's uh, tax ref- refunds up to $2 billion worth for Georgians between property tax re- um, uh, refunds and, uh, and income tax refunds. There's a bump in HOPE scholarship spending, which uh, is, is something will be welcome, I think, by many people. And, and finally, there's a program in place to uh, already to train state uh, workers for the new economies that are coming into the state. But the governor's added money for uh, workers to be trained in the electric vehicle industry, um, which with Hyundai and Rivian coming in, the battery companies coming in, uh, is interesting. So all that said, Tamar, it's a big budget with an optimistic view of where the state is headed financially, although there are some legislators who are a little concerned that a recession might influence how much money really comes into the coffers this year. Right now, you're seeing a lot of optimism. The state has had a couple years since COVID when its coffers have been really flush and the governor has been able to play with a lot of money and kind of send it to all of the causes that he really cares about. Uh, Record surplus in 2021, another record surplus last year, something to the tune of $6.6 billion. And there's kind of another optimistic view of what the state is going to have for 2023. And I think the governor's budget shows that. It shows that, you know, kind of his his priorities this year, a lot of education items and things that even Democrats would have a hard time saying no to. Um, There's not a lot of controversial items in this budget. Obviously, stuff will pop up, uh, I'm sure, as this session goes on. But right now, I mean, there's a ton of items that Democrats themselves would love. Teach or, you know, pay raises for teachers and state workers, bump in hope scholarship spending, uh, training workers for the new economy. It's, It's hard to say no to a lot of those things. Chauncey, um, it's it's worth pointing out that during the gubernatorial uh, campaign, Kemp talked frequently about uh, big tax rebates or refunds once again. He wanted to do it again in his second term, and now he makes good on that promise. Um, But Stacey Abrams uh, said over and over again, that's a one-time payback. We should be using this money to invest in major programs that will continue the growth of the state and the health and prosperity of Georgians. So um, that is going to be the one thing that maybe Democrats might have some concerns in talking about here. Yeah, I think the when I spoke um, a few weeks back with um, leader James Beverly about this, uh, their number one priority for this <clears throat> session was to um, address the issue of health care disparities. Obviously, that's a part and the conversation that we're having as it relates to the um, uh, the governor looking to potentially block the uh, access to the um, ACA website. But um, yes, absolutely, in terms of the overall um, regards to education and some of these other programs, there are things in here that Democrats absolutely would support. There's still, it remains to be seen, the largest issue is, as it relates to healthcare disparities is how that's going to play out. But there's um, a lot of the things, as, as the other guest just mentioned, uh, that the uh, rep, um, 
that Governor Kemp is pushing for are things that Democrats also supported as well. Leroy, and then uh, Renee, as you uh, think about the budget, what, what are your observations? Well, I will say this, uh, it is legacy time for Governor Kemp. So when you think about a budget being a statement of one's values, right? If you're the governor of the state, uh, that's what that document is. Um, he's, he is making a statement about this. Uh, and again, it's it's not controversial. In fact, I think every Georgia governor wants to be known as the governor who uh, helped the state become more educated and more work ready. I mean, that's pretty critical at this moment. And so there are some other things in there that are important uh, also beyond the education boost and, and job training. Uh, some of the mental health stuff is is new. It carries on what the legislature did, which is something that Georgia urgently needed and that it was uh, sort of sort of behind on. Um, so I think the uh, what wins the day, of course, is uh, rebates and we're going to support schools and we're going to uh, we're going to make sure that the state has a workforce that's job ready. But there are some other elements there, too, that this budget does address. And I think the ultimate thing is uh, what does this mean in terms of uh, Democrats and others as they look at uh, this budget and uh, agree with the governor or disagree? But uh, I agree with tomorrow. There's uh, very little room for pushback because the governor seems to be picking the things that are, you know, some of the biggest priorities for the state. Renee. Yeah, um, Kemp is uh, is pretty much doling cash out like he's a Democrat. It's uh, it's <laughs> I mean, here here we're talking about him as though the Democrat Democratic Party is just really just going to embrace everything that he does. And it, Leroy brings up a, I think a really interesting point about his legacy and and legacy being his outreach to the center to Democrats and what that. And how that positions him for any type of future national aspiration, you know, um, if he's doing what he's doing now here for education, for mental health, suddenly the images of him, you know, riding in the back of a pickup truck with with guns, um, you know, at, with an ad uh, against immigration reform um, and crime which offended so many people, especially in the Hispanic community, um, are kind of out the window because we're watching him support teachers as they should be supported. So it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing he's doing with uh, with this budget. But you know, I mean, at the end of the day, there there's great stuff in 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 what he's doling out and the the programs he's supporting, and you know, Georgia being as uh, uh, you know, business friendly as it is to have the the coffers that we do. You know, it's a it's a good time to be the governor of Georgia. Tomorrow, piggybacking off what Renee said, you know, the governor is lucky in that he's benefiting off a really friendly fiscal climate for him. He doesn't have to make the tough choices that a governor would have to in a recession. He's able to kind of uh, distribute the money where he sees fit and even go into legacy mode, as Leroy was saying, and, and fund things like electric vehicle workforce training. Um, you know, I, I don't know how much of that is, is because of him, but he's lucky that he's able to kind of piggyback off that climate. And so you can see Democrats, of course, saying, well, let's build, you know, let's get things ready for a rainy day or or let's um, prepare for the future. I think we saw with the pandemic because we didn't invest in things like public health when the budget was great. Um, we saw holes in, in that part of the state budget. Um, and so I'll be curious to see how much he 
response to those critics who say you should be preparing more for rainy days. Um, James Salzer, uh, before we leave the budget today, and we're going to talk about it more uh, in subsequent days as we look at it in more detail, as legislators examine it in more detail. But I thought James Salzer, in a piece that he wrote on the budget, really laid out what the state spends money on. And I think it's worth reading uh, on the show today so people have a clear understanding of what the budget is. So uh, Salzer says, I'm quoting directly from his article, the $32.5 billion or so the state spends helps it educate 2 million children, provide health care to more than 2 million Georgians, manage and improve parks, investigate crimes, incarcerate criminals, regulate insurance firms, utilities, and dozens of professions. The state issues driver's licenses and helps helps pay for nursing home care for the elderly. The state is a major provider of treatment for mental health. Uh, We name-check Leroy here, who says we're going to see some money go toward the legislative uh, measures passed last session on mental health. Uh, Drug addiction helps fund public health programs besides paying salaries. It helps make sure former teachers, university staffers, and state employees receive pensions and health care. So that's just a look at just how many programs the state government has to fund. But when you go in there, Chauncey, you um, made the point yourself. It the, the, the budget does help fund public health programs, but not to the extent that many Democrats uh, believe they should. You mentioned Minority Leader Beverly. He's now introduced legislation to fully expand Medicaid in the state, which doesn't get a lot of traction in a Republican-dominated uh, legislature, but nevertheless is on the, on the very short, short wish list of many Democrats, Chauncey. Yeah, that's one of the issues um, Leader Beverly um, uh, spoke on, saying that basically he thinks Kemp's going to have to put on his big boy pants because obviously there are a lot of the disparities that Democrats have been um, talking about for years are, you know, not just disparities that affect Democratic voters. They also uh, affect a lot of the uh, governor's base. So it's a it's a tough um, needle for him to thread in terms of being um, opposed philosophically to entitlement spending um, programs. And and that's being kind of a one of cardinal rule for the uh, uh, GOP, for the uh, uh, Republican Party, but also needing to address some of these disparities that are happening across the state that have been for a long time. And yes, as he's looking to, you know, become more of a contender in national politics, maybe running for president in the future, if not senator, you know, he wants to kind of um, cement his bona fides as a bipartisan leader, which he got a lot of credit for um, standing up um, to Donald Trump um, in the 2020 uh, elected situation in the aftermath. So there's a lot of people now that have kind of given him that bona fide. And, and since he's been able to kind of exercise the Trump demons at the state level, um, you know, not necessarily getting as much pushback from his own, the folks inside his party, now he can he can afford to do that. I do, I do think that one of the uh, areas that I haven't seen addressed as robustly that um, I'm hearing a lot of black voters talk about in particular is around affordable housing. Uh, We know that um, that's an issue that uh, Republicans in terms of policy solutions, they tend to be more about giving money back to the voters um, and, um, you know, and subsidies and tax rebates for people who have um, mortgages and homeowners and things of that nature. But that's, I think, an area that might come up into contention as we move further into the session. Okay. Thank you for that. Renee, before we leave the subject completely, um, Budget week usually starts with remarks by the governor in front of the budget 
uh, committee. Uh, that's going to happen this year as well, except this year, Governor Kemp will be doing it by satellite from Davos, where he is a participant in the World Economic Forum, Forum rubbing elbows with the elites, uh, Renee. Yeah, that's quite glamorous, right? That our uh, governor from Georgia is is beaming in from Switzerland. Um, you know, on the one hand, it's 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 great. It's great for Georgia, right? That he's out there, you know, representing um, the state, bringing maybe bringing in invest foreign investment into the state, what that could do, et cetera. Um, but it 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 does. Uh, it's a bit contradictory to his uh, everyman. Uh, you know, uh, persona in in the media and and through the electorate, um, but I think ultimately it's look we 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 live in a global economy. Georgia's part of the global economy. Him being there is is a is a positive for the state. Um, it's 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 just it just sounds a little uh, highfalutin, as they say. Well, Renee, I mean, I'm sorry, Leroy. We should point out that he was invited to speak. It isn't something that he just decided to fly off and become a part of. And he's going on a panel with uh, several other Democratic senators. I think um, uh, Joe Manchin is on a panel with him. Kristen Cinema is on a panel with him, and um, they're presumably the topic is. They're going to talk about the climate in state legislatures around the country and how what's going on in legislatures in this country may have an impact on uh, foreign uh, 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 policies and finances in uh, overseas uh, countries. So last night, Kemp uh, was uh, at a dinner with, I think, 50 CEOs of major companies. So it's hard to fault him for wanting to get in front of uh, these CEOs when he's working to build uh, Georgia as a fine place to do business. Oh, absolutely. So uh, if you think about the legacy of the Georgia governor when it comes down to economic development, uh, the model has been for a long time uh, branch manufacturing, right? You bring in uh, someone who is going to make a good, you put a plant somewhere in Georgia, and you get uh, a sort of exponential number of jobs that are uh, built off of it. Uh, I don't think uh, Kemp has deviated from that uh, a whole lot. And if you look at uh, that blueprint, he's taking it to uh, the next generation, you know, of course, uh, you know, building, uh, uh, you know, hybrid and electric vehicles, uh, the batteries that operate those vehicles. I mean, those are the economic wins now. And those companies are, you know, many of them are not American companies. So he's in the right place. Uh, I think the real challenge, too, for a discussion about this is, is the what's next, because that's only a slice of our economy of the future. Uh, it, 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 so it still plays big when you can put a big job number out there. But the economy of the future is going to be a whole lot more fractured, and it's going to require a whole lot more in terms of job readiness and flexibility with uh, the, the workforce. So the, the governor, uh, this is great, uh, and it's, it's, it's great for surface conversation. It's certainly great, too. I mean, the, the priorities are right. They're hard to argue with. But I will just say this, that the hard work of really thinking about um, two things, uh, where other jobs are going to grow in this future economy that is going to eliminate thousands upon thousands of jobs with artificial intelligence and automation. And then secondly, too, the job readiness part of a workforce that's going to have to operate in that environment is something that this governor and every governor afterward is going to have to wrestle with. 
And we need to start that conversation now and not when we've got uh, a lot of people who are displaced. All right. Thank you uh, for that. Um, Tamar, if I can, I'd, I'd like to move on to a subject that's somewhat related. Uh, we talked a little bit about health care and what the state invests in health care. Um, let's talk about the Affordable Care Act uh, and the, the ACA marketplace where people shop each year for health care plans. We know that uh, ACA has been controversial among Republicans across the country. We know that Republicans in Congress tried to kill ACA or Obamacare many times and failed to do so, Um, particularly during the Trump administration, and, and, and they've never been able to stop it. Republicans have sort of scaled back on their attacks on ACA now, but here in Georgia, we want to remind our listeners that one of the waivers that Brian Kemp is looking for from the administration, and which he initially got from the Trump administration, but was withdrawn at least temporarily by the Biden administration, was one that would block the ACA web portal, the marketplace here in the state, and would replace that with a site that would direct Georgians to private insurers where um, and one of the problems with that would be that on the ACA website, you can compare plans. You can put them side by side. Um, The Georgia portal may not do that. It may just encourage insurance companies to basically advertise their wares and it might make it harder for consumers to figure out what the best plan is. All right. I apologize for uh, uh, setting that up at such length, but it leads me to say the uh, enrollment period this year closed on Sunday, and it appears that as many as a million Georgians went to the ACA web portal to sign up for health insurance. That's a record And it suggests that Georgians really like the ACA portal. I don't know if really like is the word, but it's something that people have learned how to use and something like one in 10 Georgians are now using it. Um, There's been a lot of confusion about the state of play in Georgia now. Uh, Will we get the waiver? Remember, Governor Kemp worked with the Trump administration to get that waiver through in the waning days of, of Trump's presidency only to see Joe Biden try and halt that. Eventually it did go through, but now there's the question of what happens with this portal. Um, that's another thing that that Kemp worked with, with the Trump administration on, uh, but the plan has been halted by the Biden administration and, and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, as you mentioned, Bill, it does appear, appear that it's harder for, for folks to compare plans in the marketplace. Uh, apparently the state website, according to my colleague, Ariel Hart, does include a link to a private website that's supposed to allow people to to shop. But when my colleague went to click on it, she got a glitch and she couldn't do it. So obviously there's work that needs to be done there. I guess there's a question of whether it'll go through at all. But I think 
the biggest problem for, for regular Georgians is just confusion about what's going to happen next. Where do they go? I think folks finally learned how to deal with the Obamacare website, which, as you remember, was super glitch-filled when it, when it uh, was unveiled. I think yeah. it was in 2014. And so now that folks are finally used to it, they might have to be switched once again. And I think the, the one feature that was super popular about the marketplace was that it allowed people to compare. So hopefully this state website, should it be approved, allow the same thing. Um, Chauncey, uh, I think Tamar probably makes a good point in correcting me and saying maybe people don't like it, but they now know how to use it. I will say, Chauncey, my daughter turned 26 this year and so, or last year, and so she's off my plan, my my group plan. <laughs> and she found working at, at the ACA uh, Marketplace website very easy to do. I mean, it's interesting as the first, uh, I think it's kind of a Republican's worst nightmare in some in some respects uh, that once you give entitlements to people, they tend to eventually come to love them, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. That was the fear. I remember when Obama, when it was called Obamacare, you don't hear that as much. And everybody says ACA now. That's the other thing, um, that there was a lot of stigma uh, tied to uh, the ACA because it, of the president who got it put into place. And now as we get further and further removed from the Obama era, there tends to be a little bit more, um, oh, well, number one, we have all these healthcare problems in Georgia and everybody needs to deal with those. And you got a lot of people who don't necessarily remember or have lost focus on, you know, about who brought the entitlement spending, you know, or the entitlement program. And now people are just focused on getting their needs met. So. Um, and, and that's putting, I think, the Republicans in kind of a bind in terms of, you know, we need to address some of these disparities and some of these issues. Um, but, you know, what are we going to do? So I think the one thing that Kemp has kind of done um, a little bit with piecemeal and very sparingly kind of expanding this and and, and wanting to do it in his own way. And in my view, kind of taking ownership of it um, and not letting, uh, you know, Democrats take credit for it. It seems to be effective so far, but we'll see how it goes from here. Um Leroy, uh, uh, Tamar mentioned the aerial heart piece. Uh, in fact, she quotes the insurance commissioner, John King, as saying, quote, anytime more Georgians are signing up for health insurance is a cause for celebration. And he goes on to give credit to the GeorgiaAccess.gov website, which is the one that uh, the Kemp administration would like to see uh, used by everyone, uh, Leroy. Yeah, well, uh, success has a million parents, right? So uh, anytime, anytime you have anything that is successful, everyone wants to own it. But obviously, we know that uh, there was uh, plenty of controversy uh, when this began. Uh, the the It's good to be past a lot of the dire predictions on both sides, right? It was the, uh, if you were for it, it was going to unleash a torrent of entrepreneurship and what it was going to cover was going to it was going to solve everything right then the other side of course was that it was going to wreck the healthcare system and no one would get care now it, you know it's a program that is needed available and being used uh and what it needs to be is uh a process that's frictionless uh that's user-friendly and intuitive and get gets and will get people who are eligible such as bill you pointed out uh, and i'm someone who has uh young adult children uh, those folks being the prime folks for it because of uh, what it provides, uh, the cost uh, that uh, is is available to uh, young and relatively healthy people. Uh, those are all good things. So it's it's good now that some of the stigma, as Johnson mentioned, has receded. Some of the dire predictions, we're past that. 
Now we have a government program that, de- that just needs to be run well because people are using it and they need it. Renee? Look, I've been a part of many digital rollouts and I know firsthand that they are buggy. <laughs> they drive everyone nuts. No one sleeps. Like, you know, now 10 years old, right? It's, it's, uh, you know, they've ironed out a lot of what was making it just a nightmare in the first uh, couple of years, um, which is a relief to all Americans, right? Um, I, I do think that the numbers are going to explode as Gen Z begins to come of age. It's just ripe for connecting a generation that does everything online uh, with healthcare that's distributed online. Um, it's a li- It was a little novel to us oldies, right? We're like, wait, what? I have to go and what? And, you know, <laughs> And, and that, I think, just tripped us up, but it's not going to trip up Gen Z or younger millennials or enlightened uh, folks in all the other generations. And and with that, you're just going to see this number just explode. All right. So uh, what's going to be interesting um, as we get to our first break is to watch how vigorously, how energetically the Kemp administration continues to push the Biden administration for that waiver which would block the ACA web portal here. I don't see any reason why they won't, but it'll be interesting to watch how that moves forward. Uh, Let's get to our first break in the show. We'll be back with a lot more in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. AJC Managing Editor Leroy Chapman, Capital B Reporter Chauncey Alcorn, Renee Alegria, Ria, CEO of Mundo Now, and Tamar Hallerman of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, all with us uh, today. Um, so uh, uh, President Biden, Tamar, was in uh, Atlanta, as we know, on Sunday to uh, speak at Ebenezer Baptist Church on the actual birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. And while he was here... Uh, the AJC benefited from a full-page ad. They, who's that? Leroy. Full-page ads are nice. It's <laughs> yeah, good yes, to they continue are. getting those revenues. Uh, Tamar, uh, a full-page ad signed by a number of Democratic leaders in the state, a couple of Republicans as well. It basically, I think the the large font uh, message was uh, President Biden, secure your legacy, and it goes on to say. Uh, make sure that the Democratic National Convention in 2024 is held in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Tamar, the the uh, mayor is pushing very, very hard, as are people like Shirley Franklin and others, to uh, get the convention here, right? Yeah, very stark ad, just black text on a white background. President Biden, cement your legacy, choose Atlanta. Uh, Signed by Mayor Dickens, Shirley Franklin, Bernice King, John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, Nakima Williams, and Andrew Young. A pretty stark and pretty powerful message with an audience of one. Um, 
And obviously this, you know, getting the DNC in 2024 would mean lots of money for Atlanta, lots of money specifically for downtown Atlanta, all those hotels that would be filled with thousands of delegates and journalists and other Democrats coming in um, to, to view the, the convention. And obviously it shows how much of a, a push there is. People aren't being shy a, about this lobbying effort. And um I'll be curious to see where it goes. You know, there's also, of course, a push that uh, President Biden is doing to move Georgia up in the the voting order in the Democratic primary in 2024. Uh, that's a tougher sell because it requires Republican sign off from Brad Raffensperger here in Georgia. Uh, but this is something that Democrats can do amongst themselves, push for this convention. I do wonder if, in fact, Governor Kemp and, and Secretary of State Ravensburger block the efforts by Democrats to move the primary up into uh, one of the first primaries, Democratic primaries in the country, whether that will in some way influence whether uh, the Democrats want to bring the convention here. I have no way of knowing whether that's a factor or not. It strikes me it very well likely might be. But, you know, it's interesting um, – Leroy, the last Democratic National Convention, the last national political convention was in 1988 when the Democrats brought their convention here. Their nominee that year was Michael Dukakis, the governor of Massachusetts. Uh, That convention, among other things, uh, was known for the fact that Ann Richards, the then governor of Texas, gave a speech in which she uh, used one of the most quoted lines of the entire convention talking about George H.W. Bush, who, of course, was uh, running in 88. She said, poor George, he was born with a silver foot in his mouth. And I was on the floor of the convention when she said that, and uh, it brought the crowd to its feet. Anyhow, Leroy, that's the last time we had a national political convention here. Well, it sounds like we're due one then, right? Uh, <laughs> was, was, was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, and, and my memory from that, uh, uh, watching on television, I was not here. Uh, I was in my uh, my, my native uh, Greenville, South Carolina. That's where I was born. And Greenville, South Carolina happens to be the hometown of another participant in that convention. Uh, and that's uh, Jesse Jackson, who uh, had been a, um, a, a, a Democratic candidate. Uh, gave a a long and memorable speech, uh, as he uh, his speeches uh, aren't typically short. <laughs> but uh, but uh, if you want to think about where the Democratic Party has come from 1988 to now, um, you know, look at uh, you know the nominee, the Jackson candidacy. Um, if you fast forward now, it's a Democratic Party that uh, has leaned into. Uh, it's it's funny the the Southern Coalition had been one thing, but if you look a generation later. Uh, the coalition in the South uh, is is different, and uh, the idea of Southern uh, Democrats, uh, who at the time uh, dominated the South, uh, them doing it now, uh, they do not. So um, it's going to be interesting, and I really hope that uh, Georgia gets it. Um, I think it would be a statement on Georgia's um, its influence nationally, uh, and we know that Chicago is the other. Um, candidate. So if it is a choice between Atlanta and Chicago, the one thing Chicago does have is that they've got the Obama card to play. <laughs> but um, but but as I uh, um, would tell anyone in Chicago, my friends in Chicago, uh, you know, we've got an airport here, too. So the Obamas could get here. And I think they like Atlanta because it seems like uh, uh, Michelle Obama especially is here all the time. <laughs> so um, 
you know, there are a lot of people who like uh, Georgia's chances for landing this convention, and I think it really would for the Democratic Party be a statement about uh, who it is right now in its future and the importance of a place like Atlanta, especially in Georgia, largely uh, to uh, its future. Yeah, and it's it's it is kind of exciting for people to see a convention unfold in in their city. By the way, Chauncey, another thing that happened at the 1988 Atlanta convention was it almost destroyed then Governor Bill Clinton's political career. He was asked to give a nominating speech for Michael Dukakis. He went on endlessly. He went on so long that the networks cut away from his speech because he just wouldn't stop talking. He Clinton had to do the talk show, the nighttime talk show circuit to joke about that in subsequent periods of time so that he could somehow redeem himself. You never know what's going to happen at a political convention, Chauncey. Well, I think it worked out okay for Bill in the end, so um, uh, <laughs> history books will, will show that to be the case. But it's also interesting um, as, you know, they're looking to try to um, move South Carolina up further in the primary, uh, making it the first um, instead of Iowa. You're seeing kind of, in, uh, you know, it's hard to ignore the, what the, the, the demographics as it relates to this. Um, a lot of the concerns about um, Black voters um, in the Democratic Party um, you know, being underwhelmed by Democrats' performance nationally over the last uh, couple of cycles and wanting to galvanize that black voter base that is the, uh, you know, the um, the bread and butter of the Democratic Party. And these are some of the things that they are looking to do, um, you know, as it relates to policy with um, Republicans getting control of the House. It's not a lot um, that people are having hopes for in terms of major uh, policy initiatives that Democrats will be able to accomplish. So these are some of the things that they're trying to do to try to show black voters that, you know, that they are concerned about their issues and that, you know, that they care about their votes and, that, and their input in the party. So I think it's interesting um, as we continue this push uh, for 2024. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, let's turn our attention for a good portion of the last segment of the show to a trial that is now underway in Fulton County. Um, jury selection is underway in the trial that's come to be known as the Young Thug Trial. It involves major stars in the world of hip-hop, of rap. Um, there, are, there are some concerns in the artistic community about how lyrics of rappers are being used in some way as evidence about criminal activity. There are uh, gang associations uh, among the members of the organization that uh, that it, it, so many of its members are on trial for. We're going to talk about that when we come back on Political Rewind. Leroy Chapman, Fannie Willis has gotten a lot of national attention because of her investigation of uh, the uh, Trump and his allies who tried to overturn the results of the Georgia presidential election in 2020. She has another huge, sprawling case on her hands right now, and that's the case of, uh, of Young Thug and his associates, who are all part of, or many of whom are part of a recording collaborative, um, but also according to Fannie Willis, are members of a criminal street gang. Um, 
I, it's, it's not something we've talked about on this show, but it's a big, big story. So I want to at least address it uh, for the first time today and just get, get the general outlines of it. Leroy, start us off, if you would, on this. Yes. So um, <laughs> Young Thug, who uh, is a Grammy-winning uh, recording artist who has had number one hits, so uh, not everyone knows who he is, I mean, because he uh, speaks certainly to the youth more than any. But uh, if you're older, you may not know who he is, but I, I guarantee your kids do. Uh, he is a, a recording artist uh, of, of national, international renown. And the allegation here is that he is at the top of a street gang. Uh, so he says that it is a recording label, a, a, a um, and so this is a music business. But uh, the DA says that uh, they were also involved in organized street gang activity, uh, which includes uh, drugs and also includes violence uh, up to murder. So that's what the implication is, is that um, he was at the top of uh, of a organization, a, a criminal organization. So the RICO statute uh, is really built upon uh, being able to um, to indict based upon the idea that an organization, be it a record label, uh, be it, and we saw this uh, in the uh, Atlanta school cheating case where it was the Atlanta public school system, which is an organization that is built around uh, illegal enterprise, uh, is corrupted with uh, illegal activity. And so that's the, the whole thing of what's happening now. So YSL, which is this case, uh, is ongoing. And there is another gang indictment, too, that involves some other musicians that's also ongoing at the same time. So we're going to be looking at this for quite some time this year. Um, Chauncey, gang activity is is uh, rampant. I, I don't know if rampant's the right word, but there is certainly a lot of violent gang activity in uh, the city of Atlanta. Uh, help me with this. YSL, which is the record label uh, that Young Thug heads, is stands for, in one uh, way of interpreting it, Young Stoner Life. Um, but I think that the district attorney has talked about it as being Young Slime Life, which she says makes that violent gang connection uh, to what those the activities really are. It includes another major star, Gunna, who is also part of this trial. So this is a very, very significant uh, trial going on in, in our city right now. Yeah, uh, one of my colleagues, um, Madeline Thick, uh, Thickpen, has been recovering this as our criminal justice reporter at Capital B. Um, talked to some of the folks um, in South Atlanta, mm -hmm. uh, which is where uh, Young Thug is from. Um, and a lot of the uh, folks there have, you know, Black community in particular, have expressed, you know, kind of mixed feelings about the situation. On one hand, um, they have said that there has been uh, somewhat of a downtick in terms of of crime and criminal activity, which kind of, I think, for Fannie Lewis was part of the point of this, was to send a message that the city um, and the county are not going to tolerate, you know, rampant crime, which has been a problem um, um, in terms of violent crime for the last couple of years and as, as the pandemic has continued. Um, on the other hand, um, Young Thug was a guy who's kind of viewed as kind of a Robin Hood figure, a hero to many. Um, first and foremost, he's from their neighborhood um, and, um, you know, he represents them and it's kind of like the guy who made it. Um, he also has, uh, you know, had a reputation for giving back to the community and the folks that live in it, um, helping to provide for families that couldn't provide for themselves. So there's, and there's also obviously the element of hip hop mixed into this. 
Um, Fannie Willis would not be the first prosecutor to kind of make uh, headlines for taking down or uh, a rapper. And, you know, people have uh, often speculated that prosecutors use um, rappers as a way to boost their careers. So we've seen this um, in New York, especially with the cases involving um, Takashi 69 and um, um, Bobby Schmurder, some other prominent rappers of, you know, the newer generation. So it's an interesting situation um, in terms of, you know, kind of the divide in the black community over, you know, feeling like people are being targeted because of uh, they work in hip hop, but also um, having concerns about crime as well. Renee, obviously one element of, of this has been um that the uh, prosecutor in this case wants to use lyrics from some of the uh, music uh, as evidence, as confessions of crime. And there's been a lot of uh, concern expressed by other musical artists and, and other artists in the community beyond music who are suggesting that um, that is um, uh, an inappropriate uh, uh, use of what is artistic expression? You know, there's going to be a lot of controversy over whether the lyrics of a lot of rap songs, what kind of artistic expression they are. Some people don't see them that way. Many do. Speak to that. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. And I mean, you know, when, when you get a, a, any artist, whether it be uh, autobiographical in nature that they use as a springboard to express themselves, um, is, you know, th where is that fictional jump, right? Where Where is that arc of art that then lands into whatever medium they do express themselves? Is it real? Is it not? Is it art? Is it a confession? I mean, these are the things that I think a lot of folks going forward are going to be asking themselves as this very long trial unwinds. It's, it's I mean, it's estimated to be like nine months to a year long which is insane right what what i what I, you know in in reading about this and just the 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 complexities of um his relationship to the community that that he represents and is a part of you know it 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 where in which chauncey mentioned it it's a, it's a robin hood figure right that actually gives to the community and back to the community in ways say the government doesn't or or big business doesn't it, it reminds me of uh in, in in my hispanic world the the complexities that we have had with traditional notorious drug lords like el Chapo or Pablo Escobar, you know, where they they build they build churches, they build, you know, education centers, they send people to college. There's a whole communities that benefit from what they're doing. Not good things, but what they're doing. And uh, you kind of see a little bit of that here. And so, you know, the the romantic nature of of his legacy. Um, will is will be forever ingrained in even just that. Um, tomorrow, we should point out that even Stacey Abrams expressed concern that the, that the artists who have been indicted or facing trial here um, are being targeted uh, not because of criminal activity, but because their art reflects music that in some ways people might view as confessions of crimes that they're being singled out because of stereotypes 
about uh, uh, people in the black community. So it's interesting that, that even as Stacey Abrams talked about this, and there are larger concerns around this as well, which is why tomorrow it's going to be fascinating to see once the jury selection is over with, what kind of evidence the prosecutors bring forward. Sure. And there's a bill that Democrats have introduced on Capitol Hill. I believe the acronym is the RAP Act that would ban prosecutors from using things like lyrics in their in their prosecutions. And Hank Johnson, a, another Democrat from from DeKalb County, is on that bill and one of the main sponsors. And there's real First Amendment questions here. You know, how much of, of art, you know, what, what you can say in your art without it being used against you in a courtroom. And you can go through the indictment. I actually ended up pulling it up because I was curious about the kinds of lyrics that are cited here. And many are things that you would see in many rap songs, um, you know, talking about carrying a gun, uh, F the police, um, you know, shooting rounds from your Tahoe. Those are things you could hear in any rap song. Of course, the DA says if you're going to confess to a crime in a song, she's going to use it. And she cites one of the um, apparently the the mother of, of one of the leaders of a rival gang. Somebody had shot at her and there were lyrics to that effect in, uh, that was cited in this indictment. So there's some really interesting questions here and, you know, gray areas. And it'll be interesting to see if these prosecutors are able to convince a jury pool of that. Leroy, a very quick finish to this part of the conversation. The, the point here, though, also is there is gang crime in Atlanta that needs to be stamped, uh, stamped out. The question is whether it's this, this group of defendants who are going to trial. Uh, you, you, maybe there's an argument because uh, these aren't the only gangs in Atlanta, but yes. I will say this is that if the argument is that these folks are being prosecuted for their art, uh, there are real victims here. Uh, so the, uh, I mean, there are uh, families who are grieving loved ones they lost and there are people who have been assaulted. Uh, so it, the, these, this isn't just about uh, a disagreement exactly. with uh, the, the, the music. Thank right? you. Yeah, Thank there are real you. Victims here. Thank you. I think that's important to point out. Uh, Chauncey, we are virtually out of time, but I want to give you at least a, a little bit of time. You wrote a wonderful piece for Capital B, uh, for King Day, about the National Park Ranger who basically oversees the King Historic Site. Just give us 35, 40 seconds about who he is and what he does at the King Historic Site. We're talking about Ranger Marty Smith, and uh, he has been at the King Center for more than three years, started there as a part-time seasonal employee, um, and didn't know, you know, back in the early 90s when this happened, he was he had just finished at Morris Brown College, he's originally from Detroit, that he'd be making his entire career there. Um, working with, obviously, um, Coretta Scott King um, um, before she passed away for many years, and now um, um, Bernice King as the, uh, as the leader of the King Center. Um, and just, you know, reflecting on this life and more than anything, the importance of this institution in the city of Atlanta, the which is, uh, you know, where Martin Luther King was born, a cradle of the civil rights movement and the legacy that that leads and trying to emphasize for folks at the uh, here who, you know, there's people who come from all over the world to see the King Center. Um, sometimes, and I've seen this in New York as well, people in New York don't tend to go see the Statue of Liberty. A lot of Atlantans may not go see the King Center because it's just considered part of the home. But just wanting people to embrace, especially young people, to understand the legacy that that um, Atlanta has 
um, and wanting people to understand and educate people more about it in King's life. Chauncey, I, I recommend that people go to Capital B Atlanta, uh, the website. They can read about a, a man who spent three decades of his career, of his life, uh, at the Martin Luther King Historic Site. Thank you uh, very much for telling us about him. So, Chauncey Alcorn, Leroy Chapman, Renee Alegria, Tamar Hallerman, we are totally out of time for today's Political Rewind, but we're back with another edition tomorrow. Thank you all for being with us, both you as listeners, you on the panel. I'm Bill Nygut. See you tomorrow. In the meantime, take care. Please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.